Amen. Please be seated. If you would, open your Bibles to Esther chapter 1. Uh, as you maybe can tell by now, I am not Pastor Neil. This is not his Advent sermon. Uh, he is struck with the stomach bug in the wee hours of Saturday morning, so here I am. But uh, trust that God has a good word intended for us this morning from the book of Esther. But before we turn to his word, let us pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your word and for your spirit. For these are the tools that you use to shape your people. And you use imperfect preachers like myself to do it. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would attend to the reading and preaching of your word, that you would shape us and teach us, help us to rely more and more upon you and upon your grace to us. For all this in the name of our dear Savior. Amen. Amen. Uh, Esther chapter 1, I will be reading through the chapter. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Medea, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshana, Shethar, 
Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. He asked them, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we begin this morning uh, a series through the book of Esther, and it's a book that many of us probably know a little bit about. We remember that there's a young woman named Esther, that at some point she has to go in front of the king to save her people, and that somewhere in the end all of God's people get victory over their enemies. Maybe you know that general outline. But as we make our way through the 10 chapters of this little book, I hope that we will begin to see that there is so much more here than just another example of salvation for the Jews. Yes, we do see the story of, of salvation again, God protecting his people. We also see the origin of one of the Jewish feasts, the Feast of Purim. We see God giving grace to the humble and opposing the proud. But we also see that every chapter of this book is permeated with the providence of God. In fact, there, there are many skeptics who actually doubt God's providence in this book, for they point out that the name of God is not mentioned a single time in the book of Esther. But for those who have eyes to see, 
the invisible hand of God is clearly evident from the first page to the last. And one of the things that I love so much about the way the author has written this story is that it is so much more common to the way that we actually view our own stories. Compare the deliverance of the Jews in Esther to the deliverance of the Jews in Exodus. In Exodus, God is speaking with Moses. We know what God is doing every step of the way, step by step, giving Moses instructions, telling him what is going to happen with Pharaoh, reminding Moses of his promises and telling him not to lose heart. That's how God redeems and delivers his people in Exodus. But for us, God's revelation is complete. He no longer speaks to his people the way he spoke with Moses. And so the way we go through our trials is actually much more similar to the way the trials and uncertainties are described in the book of Esther. Esther simply had to walk by faith in God's promises without the benefit of knowing what was what God was up to. She had no word from him concerning whether or not she would be rejected or accepted. We don't always know why the scariest moments of our lives happen. Why the seeming bad breaks tend to come our way. And at the time of Esther, nobody knew why Queen Vashti had been banished from the king or or why Esther would be made queen. But in this story, we see God's people walking by faith, trusting in his providential care. And so we too are reminded that we walk by faith, trusting in God's providential care. I know I've used this illustration before, but when we think of of God's providence, our experience is much like that of a a tapestry. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody that's done some needlepoint picture hanging on the wall. If you turn that picture over in the back, it's just this tangled knot of of string and yarn, and and just it looks like it's a mess. You can't really make sense of of what it is. Then you turn it around, and, and you can see how this picture was masterfully woven together to actually resemble something coherent. And right now, we are looking at the backside of the tapestry of our life. While Esther was alive, she was looking at the backside of the tapestry of her life. Neither of us knowing what exactly the future will hold, what our lives will look like, but we know the mastery and the skill and the wisdom of the one who is knitting together our story. That's the book of Esther in a nutshell. That's what this book is all about. God's providential ordering of events for the sake of his people. And so with that introduction, let us come now to the book itself. Chapter 1 in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, 
He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. If that sentence did not make much sense to you, it's okay. We're going to do a little bit of a, a history lesson because it's important to know the context of what is happening for us to rightly understand God's story. I just sort of blind plopped you into Susa during King Ahasuerus' reign and said, make your way to the correct theological interpretation. You'd probably get lost eventually. So, so let's start. What is the context and the history in the Old Testament at the time of this writing? We will start with the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jews into Babylon, a story that we're probably much more familiar with. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has come to Jerusalem. He, he's destroyed the city. He's burned the temple. This is in the year 586 BC. And at that time, the practice of the Babylonians was to cart off their defeated foes into Babylon and sort of take the best and the brightest and sort of re-enculture them into Babylonian culture. As Pastor Neil preached through the book of Daniel, this is the exact context of what was happening. So, so we all remember that happens, 586 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed, Jews are carried off into exile. And, and it's helpful for us to ask again, why did God allow that destruction of the temple? Why did God allow his people to go into exile? Well, we see that it was actually their punishment for breaking the Mosaic covenant. So go all the way back to Moses, the time of their deliverance from Egypt, Deuteronomy 28, God is laying out all of the laws, all of the commands and the blessings for obeying them and the curse if they disobey. And here's what he says, Deuteronomy 28, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or to your fathers. Then the Lord will scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. So, so that's the warning they received when God gives the law. The prophets continually give them this warning and they continue to disobey. And so they lose God's place. They lose the promised land. And they lose God's presence. The temple's destroyed. His glory departs. And the burning question for the Jews at the time of their exile is whether or not God is going to restore them if they turn in repentance. Will they ever be delivered from their enemies and brought back to Jerusalem? Well, as the Lord foretold through Daniel, the Babylonian Empire was eventually overthrown by Cyrus the Great of Persia and the Persian Empire in 539 B.C. And this is the same Cyrus that we read about in the book of Ezra that issues the decree allowing the Jews to return back to Jerusalem and allowing them to rebuild the temple and actually supplying the supplies they need and the resources to rebuild the temple. Now, we don't know why, but a fair number of Jews don't actually return back to Jerusalem. There could be a myriad 
of reasons, but we, we know that there were many that stayed in these foreign lands and among the nations. And that's where the book of Esther picks up. It's about 50 years after Cyrus's decree. It's the year 482 BC, as we read, the third year of the reign of Ahasuerus. It's a funny name. You can barely say it. Uh, this is actually the Hebrew name for the king, but you would actually know him by his much more common name. This is King Xerxes, Xerxes the Great. It's the same Xerxes that infamously went to war against the Greeks that was held off by the 300 Spartans. Now you are probably, oh yeah, I remember that movie, uh, lost in the famous uh, naval battle of Thermopylae. This is, at the time, the most powerful king in all of the world. And so this banquet that we read about, this 180-day-long banquet, actually takes place just before his attempt to destroy the Greeks, just before those campaigns. And it is a 180-day feast, six months of just lavish parties for all of his servants, all of his generals, all of his military commanders, bringing them into the capital city one by one to show them all of his riches, all of his power, all of his splendor. And in essence, what he's doing with all of these provincial leaders is saying, if you come to war with me, we're going to go destroy the Greeks. Look how capable I am. If you come with me, this is what awaits you when we win. He's, he's recruiting them for his military campaign. He's putting all of his power, all of his might, all of his riches on display for them to convince them to go to war. Which brings us to the first great irony of the story, the first great act of God's providence. We see that at the end of this six-month-long feast, that he throws a seven-day feast. And this is a feast for everybody in Susa. It's, it's the grand finale. It's saying, if you thought the last six months were great, wait till you get a load of this next week. And so he throws a massive party for everyone. And at the end of this feast, the king is said to be merry with wine. It's probably a little bit of an understatement. This was not a casual shindig where you just have some friends over and enjoy an evening. This was the richest and most powerful king in the world, throwing a rager meant to cap off six months of lavish partying. And on the last day, he issues a command to his queen for her to join in the festivities. It's a command that, the Bible says, was in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. He wants to put her on display. And the great irony here, he has all the power in the world. Everybody in that kingdom is, is willing to, to bow at his feet and obey his every command. He has everything he could ever want, except his wife. Because he thinks that she, just like everybody else in his kingdom, is something to be enjoyed and put on display for everybody else. She's just a trophy to be paraded around, an object to be ogled. 
I think we actually see this same mindset in some of the worst forms of complementarianism today, where wives are just meant to obey their husbands without question, where it's considered a sin of discontentment to question his decisions, to ask if what he's, where he's leading the family is the right place to go, where the woman's job is simply to make her husband happy, to keep the home perfect, the kitchen productive, the kids performing, and all the while making sure she's taking care of her physical appearance so that he doesn't fall into sin by looking at other women. Sadly, that mood still exists in the church today. Same mood we saw with King Ahasuerus and Queen Vasti. We ought to be able to look at that type of mood in the church and the way that King Ahasuerus tweets, treats his queen and clearly spot the problem. See, if marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church, I'm left to ask, where is the tenderness and the love and the graciousness and the sacrifice of Christ in this relationship? Yes, woman was created from man to be his helper. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, but that is not simply a one-way street. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church is Christ's treasured possession that he is jealous over and that he lays his life down for. The church is not Christ's servant who only exists to make Christ happy. The wife is not the husband's servant who only exists to make her husband happy. And so, coming back to our story and act of God's providence, Queen Vashti refuses. She says, I'm not coming. You can't bark at me to come and put me on display before all the people. The text doesn't say why she doesn't come. Again, perhaps she was hosting her own guests and, and didn't want to come. But, but I think she didn't want to be embarrassed by this drunken revelry that was just meant to ogle over her. But whatever the reason is, we see that she denies his request, which makes him furious. So the next great irony in our story is that in order to resolve a relational conflict between the king and his queen, King Ahasuerus assembles his wise counselors and how they ought to address this matter legally. You see, see the irony there, right? Him and his wife are having a disagreement, so he needs to bring in seven of his legal scholars to think, what do I do here? He doesn't say to himself, hey, maybe I should sober up and apologize in the morning. He says, what law do I need to create to fix this? And then to further the irony, King Ahasuerus and his advisors make an absolute mess of this situation. One of his trusted advisors, Mamukin, speaks up. And what is his chief concern in this event? 
thanks. When all the women throughout Persia hear about this, we're not going to hear the end of it. Our households are going to be turned upside down. I'm not going to be allowed to treat my wife like dirt because she's going to hear that nothing happened to Queen Vashti. That that's his concern, that all the women of Persia are going to hear about this and, and there will be no end. All the men of Persia would be in danger if the king doesn't act swiftly. Again, the, their response, I, I'm left to wonder if all the husbands in Persia, led by fear and intimidation, rather than love and mutual trust and respect, if, if they led that way, they probably wouldn't have to worry about what Queen Bashti does to the king. But they're afraid. They think, we can't let this go unpunished. And so they convince the king to write an irrevocable law that banishes Queen Vashti from the king forever and says, you know what? Done with her. Why don't you go get a new, better queen that will listen to you? They're afraid, again, that that news of Queen Vashti's disobedience is going to spread far and wide. And so they create a law that they spread far and wide. You, you, you can see the idiocy of their decision-making, which reminds us that fear and anger do not good judgment make. I mean, how many times do we rush into a decision simply because we're afraid of what the outcomes will be if we don't act and we make foolish decisions? Talk to enough college students have enough stories of relationships and friendships that were destroyed by something that was done or said when they were drunk one night at a party, and then they retaliated and, and totally burned all of the bridges that they had. There is something to be said to us about being slow to act, about seeking wise counsel, about making sober judgments. But the king doesn't do that. In his anger and the fear of what will be the repercussions around the empire, they create this law. But as we read at the beginning of chapter 2, the writer tells us, after these things, when the king, the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. He remembered her. Most commentators suggest that not only did he remember, but he was actually remorseful. He regretted the decree that he made against her. He, he wished that he had her back. That once he was no longer blinded by his anger, he saw, yeah, that was a dumb decision. And if you do the math on when this decree is made, and then four years later, Esther is actually brought before the king. Most scholars again think that what took place in between is the king banishes Queen Vashti. He, he goes out to his war campaign against Greece, which he is embarrassed in, and comes home with his tail between his legs, and he's got nothing left. His, his military stinks. They can't win easy battles against 300 Spartans in their navy. 
His, his home is empty because his wife is gone because he kicked her out. And he, he's sitting sad and alone and embarrassed because of his own stupidity and his own stubbornness. That, that's probably the most likely picture of what is happen, happening here. We're getting a firsthand look that even the rich and the powerful and the famous are plagued by the curse of sin and all of its effects on our lives. How often do we think, man, I just had a little more money, a little more influence, a little more power, a little more something that my life would be better. There's no rung on the ladder that you get to where you are not plagued by the curse of sin. No one is immune from foolishness or regret just because of your position or your stature. And dare I say that the more influential we become, the more we actually forget our need for humility, our need to listen patiently to wise counsel. A lot of times we get a little bit of power at work or in your family and you think, yeah, I know, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. I don't need you to tell me. And, and we shut out all of the people who would give us wise counsel. Let us never get to the place where we refuse to hear someone because we are too proud. I think the king and his pride is learning that same lesson. So the question for us this morning then is what do we do with this story? What do we do with this chapter? Is this just a lesson about the dangers of making bad decisions? Because, you know, you, you drank too much or you were in a blind rage. Or is this just another example of toxic masculinity to be avoided? Well, it is those things. But there also is much more for us to take from the story. Again, every step in the life of Esther, we see what to us are seemingly small and insignificant details that are actually being directed by the hand of God to change the course of history. Think, what if there isn't a feast that's a six-month bender? What if the end of that feast, there isn't a week-long party? What if Ahasuerus doesn't decide to objectify his wife? What if Vashti doesn't refuse her husband? What if Mamukin doesn't come up with the worst edict possible? What if Ahasuerus actually wins the war against Greece and isn't depressed when he comes home? I think from, from our perspective, these are all just the messy tangles on the back of the tapestry of life in Persian exile. But from God's perspective, he is working together each and every one of these details in order to bring Queen Esther into the royal court in order to save his people. See, there are no what ifs in God's providential plan. God is working all things, not just the big things, all things, every detail of our lives together for the good for those who love him. Even us today, as we bear with our own foolish leaders and 
corrupt lawmakers and evil men starting wars around the world, as we deal with skeptics who reject righteousness, persecutors who suppress the faith. God is still using all of that to bring about the deliverance of his chosen people, each and every one of them. So do not give into the lie that this is a make-or-break election, or the lie that this is a make-or-break piece of legislation, or a make-or-break cultural moment. Nothing makes or breaks God's sovereign plan. Yes, we work. We make decisions. We stand against evil. We proclaim the gospel. We pray for our world, just as we see that Queen Esther will do. But we never do it out of fear that God might not be in control. We always live in the confidence that his plan is being unfolded perfectly and that his plan is best. It's supposed to be an Advent sermon. Uh, but, but we see the same reality in the glory of Advent. We're still reminded of our confidence in God. Think, who of us, if we were alive in Jesus' day, would have looked upon his story and thought, yeah, that's, that's the plan that God's unfolding. That's how I'd design it. Who of us would have seen it? God stripping off his majesty to become man. A baby being born to an unwed mother. Being laid to rest in a feeding trough among all the stinky, smelly animals. That a carpenter's son from nowhere Galilee would be claiming to be God's chosen king to lead God's people. That this man was hated by all the influential religious leaders of the Jews at the time. This man that was deserted by his closest friends, dying a criminal's death. None of that looks like God is in control. And yet, every step of the way, God's plan was unfolding perfectly for our redemption. Even in the Advent story, we see the providence of God despite outward appearances. I don't know where each of you are this morning, what your tapestry looks like from the backside. Dare say there is always in a room this big, great hurt and fears and, tr and trials. So I don't know where you are, but I do know this. You are exactly where God wants you to be. You are exactly where he has planned for you to be, that he might use this situation to redeem you, to grow you, to strengthen you, to help you rely upon Christ so that his glory might be displayed in you and in your deliverance. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can lay our lives down and our fears, our concerns, our broken plans, 
things not going the way we want them to go, we can bring all of them to the cross. For there we have the greatest example of what was intended for evil being meant for our good. The greatest example of everything looked like it's going wrong, and yet it was going perfectly according to your plan. The greatest example that broken people have their sins redeemed, that they can be made your people. And so, Lord, we pray that we would rest this morning in Jesus and in your good, perfect providence towards us. Oh, may that be our hope today. Pray all this in his name. Amen. Again, we are reminded each week as we come to the Lord's table that God is in perfect control. Again, as we just heard, the message of the cross and all that could have been seen externally looked hopeless. And yet, it was in that act where God redeems his people. And so as we come to this table, we come knowing God is in control of our lives and that he has given us all that we need for a life of godliness and sanctification and justification, that we will be brought safely home to him. It's a meal where we partake of Christ spiritually and God strengthens us that we might continue to walk in faith with him. And so it's with all of those reminders that we invite you this morning to come, partake, and be strengthened. That if you have made a public profession of faith, have been baptized, and are a member of a Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church, then we welcome you to come. This is a table for you. But if that's not you this morning, if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you haven't handed your life over to him, if you're still walking in unrepentant sin, sin that you say, I, I don't want to let this go. I, I want to keep this to myself, and I think I can keep walking with God. Then he says, no, that, that's, that's not you. Uh, we would ask you to please remain seated and to think of all that you've heard today, all the prayers, all the songs, all of the scripture that you've seen, all that God is holding out before you, and to ask yourself, what do I do with this? And pray to God that he would reveal himself to you. And so in just a moment, I invite you to come down the center aisle. We'll give you a piece of the bread. You can go to the sides and take the cup and head back down the sides to your seat. And we will then partake as one body together. But before we do, let us receive the words of institution. The Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. After he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would attend to this meal, that you would strengthen and nourish us spiritually by faith as we 
feast upon our Lord, as we are reminded of his saving work, and as we see his sacrifice put on display. Pray all of this in his holy name. Amen.